This podcast deals with adult subject matter, including depictions of drug addiction, prostitution, sexual assault, and rape. Parental guidance is suggested. Officer Daniel Holtzclaw with the police department for three years is accused of raping and sexually assaulting women he pulled over while on the job. He said, come on, come on, just a minute, just a minute. I said, sir, I can't do this. I said, you're going to shoot. Tell me your description of him. He's black. He's okay. Black male. What did your daughter tell you? She said, I met this really hot cop. So this is good evidence? Well, you tell me. The following episode contains investigative events, which occurred between July 16th and July 24th, 2014. Welcome back to Season 1 of Bates Investigates. I am your host, licensed private investigator, Brian Bates, and I am taking an in-depth look from the perspective of the prosecution, but with the scrutiny of the defense of the case of the state of Oklahoma versus Daniel Holtzclaw. This is episode seven. Last episode ended with Oklahoma City sex crimes detective Rocky Gregory completing his third and final interview with 43-year-old accuser Terry Morris on July 10th of 2014. In that interview, Terry Morris abruptly changed her allegations as to time and location so that she now directly implicated Holtzclaw as the police officer who sexually assaulted her. I'll remind you, that sudden change only came after Detective Gregory suggested a new location and date for her alleged sexual assault during his June 24th meeting with Morris. That meeting and the new location suggestion came only one day after accuser Janie Liggins went public with her allegations during a TV news interview. An interview where she claimed she was sexually assaulted on the northeast side of Oklahoma City near Liberty Station Apartments. And we know Morris knew about Liggins' public allegations because she mentions that she and Shelton discussed what was reported on the news. And finally, what's happening in Morris's life when she decides to go with Detective Gregory's new location and timeline? She's been sitting in the Oklahoma County Jail, unable to make bail for almost a week. Six days after Morris's final interview, sex crimes detectives Kim Davis and Rocky Gregory met with members of the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. During that meeting, Prosecutor Galen Gigger confirmed he would be filing two counts of felony forcible oral sodomy against then-Oklahoma City Patrol Officer Daniel Holtzclaw as a result of Liggins and Morris's complaints. To help explain exactly what that means and how that process actually works, I recently sat down with a longtime friend of mine and former prosecutor with the Oklahoma County DA's office, Angela Sonagera. How long have we known each other now? Well, I don't want anybody to know what our high school reunion <laughs> is coming up, but let's just say quite a while. <laughs> we, went, we met in high school. Yes. Putnam City High School. Was it the newspaper staff? Pro yes, I think it was, because I think you were a photographer, either that or yearbook. I was on both. So. I think I did photography, and I did, like, 
the cartoons, right. the little editorial cartoons or something in it. And so we've known each other really ever since then. You went and went to law school. Where'd you go to law school at? OCU. OCU. Um, just so people know, um, I actually am finishing up my last semester at UCO, and the plan is for me to go to OCU starting next year. What have I told you about going to law school? I know. Everyone tells me. The lawyers I work with are like, why would you do this to yourself? Why would you do this to our county? Um, don't do it. Um, but it is something I haven't talked to a lot of people about. But it, but the Holtzclaw case is part of the reason uh, that got me interested in it. I've been a PI for a long time. I've I've been a, a, a thorn in the side of the DA's office for a while. I've been all these things. And so I've decided um, I finally figured out what I want to do when I grow up. Brian Bates with a law degree is very scary. Yeah, thought. it could be very scary. So that that is the plan. I'm in my last semester at, at UCO, and then the plan is to go on to law school. So you, you though, took the more direct route and actually went straight from college to law school. How long have you been a lawyer now? Oh, gosh, 2019. So it would be 18 years in April. Wow. 18 years. Now, did you immediately go over to the dark side and go to the DA's <laughs> office? No, I did not. I, I bounced around a little bit. I did actually did civil practice first for a couple of years, um, like consumer protection stuff, you know, suing car dealerships, uh, things of that nature. Um, then I went to, I did child support enforcement for a little while, for a couple of years. And then I joined the, the DA staff in 07, shortly after Mr. Prater was elected. Okay, so right after, which is our current DA, David Prater, you went to work while he was the DA. And then when did you leave the DA's office? Um, almost two and a half years ago. So how many years total were you with the DA's office? Ten. Okay, so ten years, pretty good amount of time at the DA's office, all under District Attorney David Prater. Correct. Who's run unopposed ever since he took the office. I believe that, yes. Right, which I, I would consider a feather in his cap. No one's wanted to run up against him, but sure. I also don't know how many people want the workload that comes with it. Probably a little bit of both. Okay, and then you left a couple years ago, and are you back in private practice now? Uh, I'm actually a criminal defense attorney now. I work for the Hunsucker Legal Group. You saw the light. <laughs> You're out there trying to preserve justice on the right side of the law. <laughs> now, is Oklahoma County, is it the largest county as far as for criminal cases in Oklahoma? I believe so. Um, Tulsa is really close, but I think Oklahoma County still is the largest. How many actual criminal cases do you all think you pursue in a year? I think 2016 was the largest that I can recall, and that was the year I think 10,000 charges were filed. Now, I think it's dropped since then, but I would say around seven to 8,000 charges a year. Okay, and you were working at the DA's office during the time of Daniel Holtzclaw's case, were you not? Yes, I was. But just to be clear to everybody, you didn't work on this case. You didn't have access to the discovery. It was just something going on in your office. And it was Galen Giger and who else that prosecuted this? Uh, was it I, Laura? I think it Lord McConnell is what okay. I've heard. So Galen and Laura, they prosecuted it. But you just know what you heard in the office, what you saw in the news. Well, when I saw in the courtroom, yeah, I, I had I, I prosecuted white collar crimes at the time. So I was literally on the other side of the office from Lori and Galen and because um, they're in a separate unit. I had no idea of any specifics. Just if I happened to be in court sometimes when Mr. Holtzclaw was there, I would see what was going on. But I didn't have any insight whatsoever. I was too busy with my own cases. What units did you work in? Well, everyone starts out in misdemeanor, and then you kind of move up to a felony docket after that. And then I worked a felony docket. I worked kind of different places on the felony docket, and then ultimately ended up on white collar 
white collar unit for the longest period of time. I won't put you on the spot to, you know, what your opinion of the case was just as served or denied. My main reason for wanting to talk to you is you were obviously aware of the case as it was happening, because it's probably a lot of people just in the DA's office talked about it. It was a big deal. Sure. What I really want is for you to help me better understand and for the audience to understand the process of a, a, a DA's office. Yeah, Mr. Prater's the elected district attorney, and then everyone who works under him are assistant district attorneys, just kind of like the public defender's office. Mr. Ravitz is a public defender. All of his employees are assistant public defenders. Okay. Now, there's like a next in charge under Prater, and what do they call that position? First assistant. And at the time, who was the first assistant? Uh, Scott Rowland. Okay. And then Scott Rowland left. Do you remember what year he left? I think it was... I had already left at that point, but I think it was 17. Okay. And then I think it's important to know, where did he go right after the DA's office? He's on the Court of Criminal Appeals now. Right. And um, even though we're doing this podcast in order, there's real no spoilers. Most people know how this case ends. Daniel gets convicted. Actually, at this point in real time, um, here we are in, in August of 2019, the, the decision has come out on uh, Mr. Holtzclaw's appeal, and it was affirmed, which means it was denied. But... The interesting part is Scott Rowland, who was first assistant at the time during Daniel's trial, he then moved to the Court of Criminal Appeals, but he had to recuse himself from an opinion on the appeal because he was so closely tied to the to the trial itself. He would he, you know, obviously would have been biased because he was in the DA's office at the time. And I gotta ask, so have you been listening to the podcast? I have. Okay. Are you completely caught up? No, I'm not. What, what episode are you on? Um, just the latest episode. I think it's six. Yep. Is that correct? Um, I think I'm about halfway through it because okay. I listen to it as I'm driving around town or if I'm going out of county on a case. And um, I've, it's a very active listening podcast, so sometimes I have to rewind to catch stuff. And um, it sometimes takes me a little longer. We're at the point that they've just finished, or Detective Gregory has just finished his interview his third interview with Terry Morris. And this is the interview where she now changes virtually everything. And she now says that it happened on the other side of town. She's basically describing, or pretty detailed describing, a stop that Daniel Holtzclaw had committed um, with her. So now that that both uh, Detective Gregory and Detective Davis are done with that part of the investigation, it appears that last episode with Terry Morris happened about July 10th. On July 16th, there is a note in a police report that um, basically says that the detectives have spoke with ADA Galen Gigger and that at this point he has agreed that he's going to file one charge each based on Liggins's complaint and Terry Morris's complaint. And he's agreed that he's going to file one count each of forcible oral sodomy. Ultimately, there's additional charges that he also files. I think another important note is those charges weren't actually even filed until August 21st of 2014. So we're talking well over a month after he said he was going to file charges before they were filed. So what I want the audience to understand is, what is the process, myth versus reality, of how you go from allegations and police investigating allegations to the point that a district attorney's office decides to file or not file or ask for them to do some more investigating? How does all that come about? Well, basically, it, it, the process is called screening. Unlike law and order, they don't go out to a crime scene and help the cops investigate or, you know, 
some we do have we did have an on-call phone where we would help aid officers or detectives if they had a question but um, for the most part they don't go out to crime scenes unless maybe there's something very very high profile but at the very minimum they would be notified of it basically screening is where the ada or the team leader would go to the police department once a week and literally screen charges like the detectives would have a stack of of charges on their blue sheets and what are blue sheets that is the the sheet where the police list all the information um like the the victim's name the suspect's name all that their vital information that's possible charges evidence that's going to be exhibited in witnesses and it is literally a blue sheet um, a legal sized piece of paper there are stacks of blue sheets and they're like here are some charges we would like for you to file the ada would look them over read the reports if they you know if they're not really 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 long but see if they fit the elements of the crime that they're alleging has been committed and if it requires follow-up say well there's not enough there see if you can find out you know this information you know go talk to this witness again or see if you can find some other witnesses or somebody that knows something else about it if if they're okay with it then they'll agree to 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 file it if not they'll tell the detective they're going to decline those charges like i said it's literally a blue sheet do the detectives do they make the suggestion we think it's one count each of forcible oral sodomy or do they just present the facts and then the ADA will decide what the appropriate charge would be or is it a mix of the two it's a mix of the two like a lot of times what they'll do is um let's just like on the traffic stop they'll present charges of for example DUI speeding left of center illegal uh you know expired tag well when they talk to the prosecutor the prosecutor the ADA may agree well, let's just file the, the, the DUI in the speeding charge. So whatever the police list on that blue sheet doesn't mean that that's what's actually going to get filed. Again, for various reasons, it could be they don't have enough information on one charge versus the other, or maybe one charge fits better than the other because you're, you're supposed to file the most specific charge you can according to statute. And, and, and it may be they presented 10 charges to, to somebody and they only felt two were appropriate at that time. Now, that doesn't mean other charges can't follow as, as information is developed, but at that time, they may only have enough um, evidence, enough proof of two charges. Okay, which is what I think happened in this case, because as the, as the report that Rocky Gregory and, and Kim Davis filed said on, on July 16th that Galen Giger who ultimately prosecutes this case at trial and that he was going to file one count each of forcible oral sodomy now two things happened since then one it was actually more charges than that they they ended up charging uh Daniel with on and specifically to Janie Liggins they charged him with one count of forcible oral sodomy and one count of procuring lewd exhibition and then with Terry Morris, again, one count of, of forcible oral sodomy, and then two counts of procuring for lewd exhibition. Now, kind of to explain to the audience, just because the, the, uh, the, the prosecutor said, we're going to file these charges, obviously charges were not filed right away. It was over a month later. So if they've agreed to file, why, why don't they file an arrest immediately? Well, it, it's a bit of a process. After the charges are approved by the ADA, they take them back. They take the blue sheets back to the office. They they go through and just review everything again, just to make sure everything's good. And they'll sign the charges. Then they're given to a secretary to to be typed up because as when charges are filed, there's specific language that has to be in them. 
when that's done, it's given back to the ADA for signature for final approval and to make sure that they've got everything that they want to file or if they want to change something, they can do that at that time. And then they're taken to the court clerk's office and filed that way. And then at that point, a little bit further down the road, you know, an arrest warrant is issued. So it could take several weeks or a month or two or whatever for charges to be filed, to, to, for charges to be actually filed. And then that's kind of a fluid thing. As we saw initially, it was one charge each. What ends up becoming two charges for one, three for the other. But by the, by the time they file the charges in, uh, in August of 2014, there are several more accusers or victims that have been identified that are added to these charges. So is this, is this just more or less just a green light for the detectives to continue to investigate this, that, that they are going to file charges, but if there are some additional warranted charges, continue to investigate this? Or would there be a reason why, why did they present now if they obviously thought there were more victims? Why didn't they wait till they had this entire list of people they think should be charged? Why did they, they go? Because they actually amend the charges at least three times in this case. Um, that's really not unusual either. I mean, just sometimes more information comes to light or like you just said, some people have come forward a little bit later in the process um, or they, they, they just, they talk to other people and that warrants um, more charges or more information from the victim comes to light. I mean, cause when police talk to somebody or a victim, you know, they may not be for, very forthcoming at first because they're scared or you're, they're worried, you know, or something like that. And then later on, as the process kind of goes through, they may become a little more relaxed and say, well, you know, I did remember about this, this part too. And I mean, it, it is a very fluid process. And, and in fact, charges can even be amended well after the fact. I've, I've actually seen this too, where a witness or a victim will testify and say something that was previously unknown and we show up the next morning to court or whatever and they've amended the charge and they've, they've added something. Right. Um, a, a very common occurrence is if it gets to what's called a preliminary hearing. Um, a witness testifies in court at, let's say, preliminary hearing, then the ADA can amend the charges right there in court because of new evidence that has come to light. That's a very common occurrence too. So they amend it at the time and then formally amend it later on with the new documentation. Ultimately, the prosecution, when they go forward with their case, at pretty much every stage, or every stage, you have to prove the elements of the crime. And when you get to a trial, you have to prove the elements of each crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So, yeah, you want to make sure that your ducks are in a row and that, like I said, when you're even screening charges, you have to see if those elements are present. And if they're not, like I said, sometimes you can ask for follow-up from the detective to see if they can develop like that, maybe that missing element. And if they can't, then you, you can't charge it or you shouldn't charge it. Um, or if they're, if they're all there when you screen the charge, then you agree to file it. So absolutely, you've got you've to have your elements. And those are defined under statute. Correct. And then those elements are actually presented to the jury right before the deliberation, are they not? Correct. They're um, uniform, Oklahoma Uniform Jury Instructions, or Ouija's as we call them, lists, I mean, they literally list each element of the crime, and those are given to the jury uh, members in a packet, and we go through each of them. The judge will read each of them, and it says if the state doesn't prove these elements beyond a reasonable doubt, then 
you have to find them not guilty. This is really the first time in the podcast and in, in last episode, and really this episode, um, we've introduced the audience to Assistant District Attorney Galen Gigger. And if you kind of just give me so the audience understands who, from your perspective who Galen is, you know, my perspective is he's a longtime prosecutor. He's one of the best in the office. I may have my own personal opinions about him, but it, it doesn't change the fact that I look at him as a lethal weapon um, in the DA's office. I think he's really good. He can get up there and just talk and doesn't have to look at a script and just kind of, you know, goes after the other side. What if you if someone said, well, who is this Galen Gigger guy in the in the DA's office? What would you tell people? Pretty much what you said. He's an amazing prosecutor. Um, I believe he started out the juvenile division in but he's been in the downtown office for many, many years and very, very smart. I mean, he's not head of the sex crimes unit for nothing. You know, that's a very difficult unit in and of itself. And I've seen him in trial before. And even now as a defense attorney, I'm still in awe of him because, you know, trial skills are, are very, um, you know, some people have it and some people don't, but some people can learn it. And, but Galen, you know, he's, he's a great prosecutor and, I would be, you know, if I if I defended, you know, sex crimes, I, w- I would be very nervous going up against him in trial. And that's not to say he wins every case he, he has. Nobody does. But, yeah, you're going to have to work really, really hard um, because he's going to have – He's going to have his evidence. He's going to have his witnesses. He's going to have everything ready to go. And you're going to have to be, you're going to bring your A-plus game. Right. And, I, and I've personally, of course, not a lawyer, but I've assisted other lawyers directly in the Holtzclaw case, which he prosecuted. And we had another big high-profile case, a, a Dr. Burt Franklin, a dentist who was accused of, of murder and solicitation of murder. Galen prosecuted that one. Um, I've had one or two other ones in there that Galen prosecuted. And then I've watched him prosecute cases. And when we get to the trial part, I certainly take issue with some of the strategies or some of the things that Galen does. And and one of the things he did during closing certainly is a hot button issue with it. But those things aside, I've always told people, if you're being charged with a crime, one of the first things you want to look at, who's your judge? Because that makes a difference. Right. Who's your prosecutor? I think going forward, while I may have some criticisms of Galen, I do want to go on the record and say that uh, there's a reason he has that position. You know, I don't understand why he's not the first assistant, um, because I think he is that good. But would you consider him to be one of their A-team top prosecutors that when it's a big case, high profile, and they need to win, he's he's on their short list? Oh, without a doubt. This case has now been going on since June 18th of 2014. And at this point, it's just less than a month later that Galen's agreed to file charges. And they have relieved Daniel of duty. They've taken his badge and his gun, his uniform, and his car away from him. But he's out free. I mean, my understanding would be... I, I assume he could leave the country if he wanted to at this point. Could he not? Uh, if he wasn't charged. Yeah, he yeah. hasn't been charged with anything at this point. But he stays. Is it ever play into the prosecutor's minds to expedite charges because they know that their defendant has basically been put on notice that they're being investigated for some very serious crimes, but they haven't been charged, so there's no restrictions on their movement? Does that ever play into a prosecutor's mind that we need to hurry up and file these charges and place this person under arrest so that we get them off our streets? Because it was, it was you know, uh, more than a month after they agreed to file charges before they actually did file those charges. Was w- Is it surprising at all that they didn't just go ahead and file these initial two charges, get him in jail, get him off the streets, and then just file more later? Well, you don't really like to file something just to file something because, you know, you want to you get it right. You want to make sure 
you've got everything um, in order. You can technically amend charges, you know, various times. You just don't want to do that. I mean, you want it because it kind of hurts the credibility of your case if you have to keep amending charges or because you rush to file something. It's it's better to wait and make sure you've got the evidence, you've got the elements filled. And Holtzclaw was a police officer, so he does have that sense of law and order. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't know him personally. I've never met the man, but, you know, that's probably kind of ingrained in him at this point. But they have a certain amount of time to file charges anyway. So by statute, they could wait two and a half years if the statute of limitations is three years to file charges. And unfortunately, people just have to put their lives on hold, although they generally don't. But they could wait as long as they want. I'm assuming most cases probably are not on the radar of the district attorney, David Prater. But would a case like this have been on his radar from day one? Would he, would he, would they, would Galen go to him or whatever and then say, hey, we've got something pretty serious involving a police officer that we're in the investigative stages of right now? Oh, sure. That's, that's not unusual at all. Again, with any high profile uh, situation like that. I mean, they just want to make sure that, you know, with it being high profile, everyone's aware of what's going on in case. You know, maybe somebody in the press calls or something, you know. But for, like you said, the, the day-to-day stuff, that's, that's, that wouldn't be taken to, to a team leader or a Prater. Despite the fact we're, we're friends on this, I, regardless, you're a professional. You know, we all live for our weekends. I really appreciate you taking time out on a Saturday morning in particular to come downtown and meet with me and talk about this case. And hopefully you'll continue to be a listener. And we're, we're ultimately coming up on the charges being filed and they'll be amended. And there's bonds that are set and bonds that are reduced and things like that. And so if you'd be willing, I'd love to uh, just go ahead and extend now an offer for you to return and kind of be our sort of one of our legal experts who just pops in from time to time and gives your opinion or at least educates our audience as to why, from a prosecutor's perspective, why things are happening the way that they are. Sure, I'll be glad to do that. And there are certainly better educated and smarter lawyers than me, but I'm happy to do it whenever you need me. Well, and you know all my high school secrets, so I'm going to keep (laughs) having you on just so you don't share those with anybody else. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll be in touch. Glad to do it. Angela will probably be joining us in future episodes as we discuss the formal filing of criminal charges, Holtzclaw's arrest, bond, the filing of even more criminal charges, and even the trial process from the prosecution standpoint. The next day, July 17, 2014, investigators claim they inquired with the Spring Lake Briefing Station secretary as to the existence of any field interview cards from Holtzclaw's May 8th stop of Terry Morris. In fact, she allegedly states she didn't find any FI cards turned in by Holtzclaw for that entire shift. This small detail will become significant as more and more accusers are identified by detectives. On July 18, 2014, Detective Gregory ran Daniel Holtzclaw's name and identifying information through several of their public and private databases. One public database that is pretty popular throughout Oklahoma is OSCN.net. That stands for the Oklahoma State Courts Network. It's a publicly accessible online database that provides a very comprehensive list of all interactions individuals have had within the Oklahoma court system. If you've ever been charged with a crime, been sued, 
gotten married or divorced, changed your name, had a VPO, or really anything that involved a county courthouse in Oklahoma, then it's probably in that database. When investigators entered Holtzclaw's name, all they found was a link to a civil case filed in January of 2014. The case named Holtzclaw, other police officers, then Chief Bill City, and the City of Oklahoma City. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of a man that died while being taken into custody by Holtzclaw and other officers. I briefly mentioned this death in episode 4, and that Holtzclaw and the other officers were cleared in the death. That lawsuit was transferred to federal court in April of 2014. Detectives next ran Holtzclaw's name through several less public databases like OSBI and NCIC. Those efforts did not turn up any useful information. On July 22, 2014, Detective Kim Davis calls Holtzclaw's FOP-appointed attorney, Susan Knight. Detective Davis tells Knight that DNA belonging to an unknown female was discovered on the fly area of Holtzclaw's uniform pants. Davis asks Knight if Holtzclaw would make himself available to investigators to try and obtain a list of potential DNA contributors. Knight told Davis she would speak with Holtzclaw and then call her right back. According to investigative notes, a few minutes later, Knight called Detective Davis and reportedly told her, quote, Under the advice of counsel, Daniel Holtzclaw would not come in for an interview, end quote. Detective Davis reportedly then asked if Knight would obtain a list of potential DNA contributors from Holtzclaw and then pass that information along to investigators. Knight responded by telling Detective Davis that Holtzclaw had already previously given a statement and that was all he was going to give. Now, before you go criticizing Holtzclaw for allegedly not cooperating, just know that this is pretty standard defense attorney posturing. Knowing Holtzclaw as well as I did during that time, he pretty much went along with whatever his attorneys advised him to do. According to investigative notes and trial transcripts, due to the presence of the unknown female DNA on Officer Holtzclaw's uniform pants, detectives made the decision to seek out yet unknown potential victims. I feel compelled at this point to put into clear context the DNA that has now become center stage in this investigation. Some of you may hear the term DNA and think that means some sort of sexual fluids. That would be incorrect in this circumstance. As will be testified to by police lab analyst Elaine Taylor at trial, the DNA she found is simply skin cells. Exactly what would be transferred to your hand if you and I shook hands right now and exactly the same type of skin cell DNA that you could then transfer to, say, a coffee cup, a pen, or even the fly of your pants. In that example, it would most likely be an extremely tiny amount of skin cells, and an extremely tiny amount of skin cells is exactly all that was found in Holtzclaw's case. So, for clarification, there was no physical evidence of any sexual contact found by the prosecution. No blood, no semen, no saliva, and no vaginal secretions. Just skin cells. I will be digging deep into the DNA when we get to that part of the jury trial. 
I just felt it was important that you understand what the term DNA means at this point in the investigation. This new phase of the investigation, seeking the contributor of the DNA found, first relied on data that was pulled right after Janie Liggins came forward on the morning of June 18, 2014. You may remember that in episode 4, I mentioned that Lieutenant Musney requested copies of the names of all females Officer Holtzclaw had run through his computer from April of 2014 to June 18th of 2014. After Detective Gregory had, at least in his mind, connected Holtzclaw to both Liggins and Morris's sexual assault allegations, he next began looking more closely at who all Holtzclaw had had contact with to try and identify any additional accusers. According to a report filed by Lieutenant Musney, quote, I contacted Unit 800 and had the supervisor, Janet Mansfield, look up all females that 2 Charlie 45 ran through them from April 2014 to June 18, 2014. She gave me a list and I began checking the names through our Varuna system to see if any of the persons checked had a criminal history. I was specifically looking for women who had either a drug history and or a history of prostitution. I then made a list of women who I felt we needed to make contact with to see if they were a victim of sexual assault. Signed, Lieutenant Timothy Musney. End quote. I want you to pay close attention to the number of times I quote from the investigator's own reports that they constantly refer to a quote, list when reaching out to potential victims. While a list of everyone Holtzclaw ever ran through his computer does exist, and I've posted a redacted version of that initial list on this episode's homepage at HoltzclawTrial.com, detectives will over and over again reference a much more condensed and targeted list provided by Lieutenant Musney. In fact, I just read that to you. Quote, I then made a list of women who I felt we needed to make contact with to see if they were a victim of sexual assault. End quote. In an unbelievable turn of events, Lieutenant Musney and Detectives Kim Davis and Rocky Gregory will later deny at trial that any such list ever existed. Which is pretty remarkable when you consider this quote regarding the next accuser I will be discussing. On July 23, 2014, Detective Davis writes the following in her investigative report. Quote, Lieutenant Musney gave me a list of several females that he wanted contacted because they could be possible victims of Officer Holtzclaw. When he gave me this list, we still had not found a match to the unidentified female DNA on Officer Holtzclaw's pants. Kayla Lyles was on the list, end quote. Lyles is identified within police records as a 29-year-old black female on probation at the time with multiple felony convictions for possession of cocaine, possession with intent to distribute, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Lyles has also served prison time for her crimes. That said, there is no information in the detective's notes, nor was it ever discussed at trial as to whether or not Lyles ever engaged in prostitution. What most likely made Lyles' name appear on Lieutenant Musney's list that he later claims doesn't exist 
is the fact that Lyles is a black female with a history of drugs and, what is probably most important, she appears to have had contact with Holtzclaw in the early morning hours of June 18, 2014. That's the same morning Janie Liggins says she was sexually assaulted by Holtzclaw. This begs the obvious question to detectives. Could Lyles be the contributor of the DNA found on the uniform pants taken from Holtzclaw on June 18, 2014? Detectives Davis and Homan drive to the last address listed for Lyles in the Varuna database. This address turned out to be the home of Kayla Lyles' parents. Lyles' parents said that they had not seen their daughter in weeks. Detective Davis gave them her business card and asked them to have her call whenever they saw her next. That call would not come for almost two months. At the same time that Kayla Lyles is on the detective's radar, another name immediately stuck out to Detective Gregory, Sherry Ellis. Ellis is identified in the police database as a 39-year-old black female with a felony conviction for burglary and misdemeanor convictions for transporting a loaded firearm, driving under suspension, transporting an open container, and prostitution. Like Lyles, Ellis too has served prison time for her crimes. Detective Gregory noted in his investigative notes that Patrol Officer Holtzclaw had run Ellis through the Varuna system four times within a two-day period, May 7th and May 8th, 2014. Those dates correspond with Morris's latest allegations that she was sexually assaulted by Holtzclaw after she walked away from the Liberty Station Apartments on May 8th of 2014. Detectives set out to locate Ellis much in the same way they attempted to locate Lyles and Morris. They relied on information contained in the Varuna database. After leaving cards and messages with friends and family members, Ellis finally calls detectives back on August 5th 2014. I have received a tip on, I've been working, I work in sex crimes and I've been working some cases and I received a tip that you may have been sexually assaulted by a police officer. Yes, I have. I'm going to end this episode here and you don't want to miss the next episode. You've probably heard about the accuser that described her attacker as, quote, a short, black police officer. Well, that's Ellis, and her story is next in the investigative timeline. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to know more and see many of the files used to compile this episode, please visit this season's homepage at holtzclawtrial.com. You can also follow updates on our Facebook page at In Defense of Daniel Holtzclaw or on Twitter at Holtzclaw Trial. Bates Investigates Season 1, The Daniel Holtzclaw Case, is researched, produced, and edited by me, Brian Bates. This has been a Bug Stomper production. Bugs. <laughs>